Well, it was uh, at the end of the 1800s when a Norwegian scientist with a very difficult name uh, did an experiment with some chickens. Now, what he did is he got the chooks and he put them all together in the one pen and then he put some bird seed right in the middle of them. At first, there was a whole lot of squabbling that went on, as you can, I'm sure you can imagine, a whole lot of jostling that went on. But what he found after a while is that the strongest, the most dominant chook was able to eventually eat undisturbed. And he was able to eat all the, the bird seed that, that it wanted. And only when this particular chook, the strongest chook, had, had finished eating, did the next strongest, the next most dominant chook, come in after it to eat. And so on, until finally the weakest, the least dominant chicken was able to come in and eat. And so through this particular experiment, this Norwegian scientist, he discovered that there was a particular pecking order among the birds, and hence the commonly used term, pecking order. A pecking order, a social hierarchy in which each of the, the chickens uh, pecked subordinate chickens uh, or, or submitted to being pecked by dominant chickens. Well, of course, uh, no experiment is necessary, is it, for us to realise that there's a pecking order that has always existed among human beings. There's always been top chooks and bottom chooks, those with power and those without power, those who are served and those who do serve. And the further up the pecking order one is, well, the better off he or she is. True, isn't it? No one sends their children to school with the hope that they'll end up being a slave. We all want our children to make it in this world. And what that means is them being high in the social hierarchy. For us, where we are in the pecking order matters. And so when we ask people what they do for a living, I reckon more often than not what we're trying to do is work out where they fit in in the social pecking order compared to us. I wonder where you see yourself fitting in in the social pecking order. Well, as we'll learn today, unless you see yourself at being right down the bottom of the social pecking order, then you ought to be quite worried. Why? Well, friend, because to be anywhere else other than at the bottom of this pecking order means that you are not following Jesus. It means you are not his disciple. Now, if you don't already have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, can I strongly encourage you uh, to open there with me now, Mark chapter 10. That's page 716 of the small print Bibles, 1571 of the large print Bibles, Mark chapter 10. You'll remember that for the last few chapters now, Jesus and his disciples, they've been on a bit of a road trip. They've been making their way to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus will eventually die. And it's all going to happen very soon. We're only half a chapter away now from the time when Jesus and his disciples will finally have reached Jerusalem, the place where it'll all happen. So we've got this group. They're heading along the road to Jerusalem. And where's Jesus in this group? Well, he's the one right up front. He's the one who's leading the way, resolute and determined to meet his fate there in Jerusalem, evoking astonishment and fear for all those who are with him. 
and it's now, it's at this point that Jesus again takes his 12 disciples aside and he goes over his plan with them once again, telling them exactly what's going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he says, and there I'm going to be betrayed to the religious establishment. They, in turn, will hand me over to the Gentiles and they will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. But then three days later, I'll rise again. Read with me from Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, this is actually the first time that Jesus has mentioned the fact that it will be at the hands of the Gentiles that he's going to die. It's actually quite a a startling revelation for anybody who knew anything about um, execution at the hands of the Gentile Roman government. Because you see, that was an awful, awful scenario. They were so cruel. But it's what Jesus now tells his disciples is going to happen to him. And I guess it's the awfulness of this particular revelation that makes the following actions of James and John all the more contemptible. Uh, James and John, who are they? They're, of course, uh, two of Jesus' disciples. Uh, They're brothers. And here they come to Jesus and they make of him a shameless request. It's a shameless request for honour and power. What they do is they find a moment when they can get Jesus alone, out of earshot from all the other disciples, which I guess in itself kind of suggests that they already know that what they're about to do is a bit dodgy. They get Jesus alone and then they say to him, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. So we've got something that we want, we want to ask you to do. We're not going to tell you what it is. Uh, what we want you to do is to agree that you'll do it even before we, we tell you what it is. You know, it's a bit like saying, okay, Jesus, uh, here's, a, here's a blank check. Uh, if you could just sign here... And we'll fill in all the other details later. Thank you very much. Again, you see, the way they're going about this is it's as though James and John already know that what they're about to ask for, it's dodgy. But Jesus, uh, he's onto them. He doesn't play their game. Instead, he asks them a question. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? To which James and John reply, Well, Jesus, you know, when you become king, we want to sit alongside you. One on your left, one on your right. We want to sit beside you. Of course, to sit at the left and right-hand side of a king was to be be given a special place of honour. It was to be put in a position of power. So you see, this is really a shameless request by James and John for honour and power. We've already seen the disciples arguing among themselves who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
Well, it seems that James and John have come to their own conclusion. They are. And so they should be seated next to Jesus. They think that they ought to share in the glory of Jesus. You see, what they, what they have still failed to realise is that to share in the glory of Jesus would at the same time require them sharing in his painful destiny. It would mean to die with him. And they fail to understand that that, that in itself, it, it, it's impossible. Because as we'll go on to see, the death of Jesus would be unique. A part of the unique mission of the Son of Man to die in the place of many for the sake of their salvation. A mission that would have Jesus face hell on behalf of those who he would save. James and John have no idea what it is that they're asking here. So Jesus asked them another question. He says, fellas, do you really think that you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Do you really think that you can be baptised with the baptism I'm about to be baptised with? In other words, fellas, do you really think that you can suffer and die the death that I'm about to? To which James and John answer, well, yeah. Yeah, of course we can. Seems that Jesus didn't nickname these two brothers sons of thunder for no reason. These blokes, they, they make some pretty impressive noise, don't they? Uh, but just like thunder, there's not much substance to them. Of course we can suffer and die the death that you're about to. I reckon Jesus must have been biting his tongue as his mind jumped forward to that time when James and John, along with all the other disciples, would abandon Jesus at the cross. All of them running away, scared, witless. Jesus doesn't mention that, though. Instead, his mind jumps even further forward to another time. A time after his death and resurrection. A time when James and John would be prepared to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Of course, about ten years after this particular conversation here, James would be the first disciple to be martyred. And according to church tradition, his brother John, well, he would be imprisoned and he would uh, suffer terrible torture. So Jesus tells them that, okay, yes, in one sense... You, they would drink from the same cup and be baptised with the same baptism as himself. But as for choosing who's going to sit at the right and left of Jesus in glory, well, not, that's not for Jesus to decide. Presumably it's God the Father who will make that decision. Read with me from verse 35. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. 
Now, of course, uh, when the other ten disciples hear of James and John's shameless request for honour and power, how do you think they're feeling? Well, they are indignant. They're furious. Why is it, do you think, that they are so angry with James and John? Well, no, I don't think it's because they're any more righteous than James and John. No, I reckon they're furious with them simply because, well, James and John beat beat them, you know, in asking the same question that they would want to ask of Jesus. That they too thought that they were deserving of honour and power. That's why they're angry. And so Jesus, seeing that that an explosion is about to happen among the disciples, he, he summons them all together for a bit of a team meeting. And he explains to them how all this... Uh, Selfish ambition, all this squabbling and jostling jostling for positions of honour and power, it's actually no different from the behaviour seen among the pagan, godless Gentiles. You know, the Roman authorities, they considered themselves great when they were able to boss people around, you know, when they had people serving them and doting over them. That was their measure of greatness, to be the top chook, But now Jesus turns that whole idea on its head. He says to them that greatness in the kingdom of God is actually the reverse. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not being the one served. Not being the one, but being the one who is serving. It's not being the one doted over. It's being the one who is doting. It's about being the bottom chook, at the bottom of the pecking order. The disciples, you see, they need a a revolution in their thinking, a new understanding of greatness in the kingdom of God. They're not to be like the godless Gentiles, no. Instead, they're to be like the Son of Man. They're, They're to be like Jesus, the Son of Man. The one who in Daniel chapter 7, you'll remember, is given ultimate dominion over everything by God, but who here in these pages, comes to earth in order to serve, in order to die for, as a ransom for many. You see, the Son of Man came as the lowest of all servants, the bottom chook, and now the disciples, they're to be just like him. Read with me from verse 41. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among uh, first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, rather than being selfish and self-centred and self-serving, Jesus tells the disciples they're there to be like him, selfless and other people focused and seeking to serve others. This quest for honour and power by the disciples, it's got to be replaced with a quest for service and sacrifice. They must become slave of all because that's true greatness in the kingdom of God. Well, sometime after this episode, Jesus and his disciples and the large crowd that's with them, they come to the city of Jericho. 
they're now only about 30 kilometres away from their destination, only about 30 kilometres away from Jerusalem. And that's, it's at, as they're leaving this city that we're introduced to a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, he's a blind man, and the picture that we're given of Bartimaeus is a pitiful one. There he is, a blind man, sitting in the gutter, begging. That's where he is when he hears that Jesus is about to walk past. Now, news that Jesus is coming, it sends Bartimaeus into a bit of a spin. And he starts crying out at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Of course, son of David, it was that special title given to the Messiah who was expected to come. It was the name of God's special king, the one who would be enthroned in Jerusalem forever, the one who, this is the one who Bartimaeus believes Jesus to be. So he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the crowd with Jesus, uh, the crowd with Bartimaeus that day, they tell him to be quiet, to stop yelling. You see, Jesus is so close to Jerusalem now, they don't want him delayed by anybody, especially not by some blind beggar. So they rebuke him, they tell him to shut up. But the only effect that this has on Bartimaeus is to make him cry out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So you see, we get this sense of this man's desperation. After all, this could be his only chance to get Jesus' attention. He is desperate. And it's these desperate cries of this poor, powerless beggar that stop Jesus in his tracks. I kind of imagine the, the initial look of surprise on the face of those people who are with Jesus that day when Jesus turns to them and says, well, go get this man and bring him to me. I mean, what does Jesus want with him? By this time, Bartimaeus, he is so distressed at the thought that Jesus is going to pass him by without noticing him, that the crowd have to tell him to, to take heart, to, to cheer up. It's okay, Jesus does want to talk with you. Well, at this news, Bartimaeus, he throws his cloak to one side, you know, this cloak that he's probably been collecting all his money in for the day as he's been begging, throws it to one side, he jumps to his feet, and then in his darkness makes his way over to Jesus. Read with me from verse 46. 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And it's at this point, this point in the story, when Jesus asks Bartimaeus, the exact same question that he had asked James and John in verse 36. He asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Well, I wonder how he will answer. 
Will he, like James and John, ask for honour and power? Will he ask for riches, fame, an NRL premiership? What does he want Jesus to do for him? Well, as it turns out, he asks Jesus for his sight. He asks Jesus to make him normal. He asks Jesus not to make him extraordinary, but to make him ordinary, to make him whole. You see, Bartimaeus has faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He trusts that Jesus really is the Messiah, the son of David. And so Bartimaeus claims for himself the Old Testament promise that when the Messiah comes, he would open the eyes of the blind. He says to Jesus, I want to see. And at this, Jesus instructs Bartimaeus to go, telling him that his faith has healed him. And, And at that very instant, Bartimaeus, for the first time in who knows how long, maybe even for the first time in his life, at that very instant, Bartimaeus can see. And most significant of all, what does he use his sight to do? Well, Bartimaeus uses his sight to now follow Jesus on the way. He uses his sight to become a disciple, to follow Jesus on this road to Jerusalem. He uses his sight to follow Jesus on this road to the cross, on this road of service and suffering. Read with me from verse 49. Verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You see, Mark is very clever, isn't he, as he's writing this gospel. He's very clever. This story of Bartimaeus, it's much more than just a story about healing, isn't it? More important than that, this This is a a story about discipleship and what it looks like. It's about recognising our desperate need for Jesus. It's a story about coming to him in faith, trusting that he is the one who is able to restore us and make us whole. And it's about following Jesus on the way to the cross. It's interesting, isn't it, how Mark has placed the story of James and John alongside this story of Bartimaeus. Of course, they stand in contrast to one another. Though both see Jesus as the Messiah, James and John see that somehow through that they can claim for themselves honour and power now. Bartimaeus sees himself as needy and cries out for mercy. James and John see before them thrones of glory. Bartimaeus sees before him Jesus walking down the road to the cross, the road of service and sacrifice, and he follows behind in his footsteps. Mark is really quite clever in the way that he writes his gospel because this contrast between the disciples and Bartimaeus now forces us to ask, which one are we like? 
Are we like James and John or like Bartimaeus? Well, all right then, let's think about it for a moment, shall we? Which one are you like? Well, let me ask you the same question that Jesus asked them. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to give you a nice, happy, easy life? A life of honour and power in the same way that James and John did. Do you want him to put you at the top of the societal pecking order? Well, if so, then you need to look for another Messiah. Someone other than Jesus. Because that's not what Jesus came for and that's not what he offers Now, what Jesus offers you is sight. Sight so that you can follow him along the road to the cross. He'll give you sight so that you can follow him along the road of suffering and service. Friends, let's be very clear about this. The true path of discipleship is the path of lowly service. It's about being at the bottom of the pecking order. And friend, if you're not serving in the kingdom of God, if you're not a servant, if you're not down the bottom, then please don't fool yourself. You're not a follower of Jesus. Because being a follower of Jesus, by definition, means following Jesus along the road of suffering and sacrifice. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now you're called to follow him, to serve like him, to be a servant like him, to be slave of all like him. And Christian, that means that you've now got to go against the grain of our society. You need a revolution in your thinking like James and John. Your aim now is not to be at the top of the pecking order, but at the bottom Your aim now is striving to be servant of all, like Jesus. And you know, that'll mean striving against the philosophy of the North Shore. You know the philosophy of the North Shore, don't you? The philosophy that says if there's a job worth doing, then it's a job worth paying someone else to do for you. It's the philosophy that says I've got enough money to pay for someone else to serve so that I don't have to. I'm aware that for the very first time in the history of this church, we're now paying for outside people to come in and clean the church for us. That worries me. You know, are we now too far up the pecking order to clean? Is that really the way we're going as a church? If so, we need to be really concerned because it's certainly not following Jesus. I wonder what your attitude is as you turn up to church on a Sunday morning. You know, as you get out of bed, what's your expectations for the morning? You're turning up with expectations of being a servant, of being, you know, getting in and serving, or, or turning up with expectations of being served. Why do you come here? You come here to hear songs, to listen to the sermon, to be encouraged, to eat the food. Is it all about what you can get out of coming? Or is it also about what you can give? 
You know, do you come with an attitude of service, with an expectation of coming, somehow rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, getting in and serving others? Now, thankfully, I'm aware that many people in this church, they really do come with an attitude of service, and that's terrific. Now, as I think about people in our church, I see people serving all over the place. People serving in kids' church and morning tea and there's people um, mowing lawns in the committee of, uh, and people working in the committee of management. There's people cooking meals for those who have just had babies or cooking meals for people who are sick. There's people in the music ministry. There's people operating computers. There's people are serving all, in all sorts of ways. And I say to those people, good on you. Thank you. Keep it up, won't you? You know, I guarantee there's going to be times that'll, when those acts of service are going to feel really hard. You're going to get tired. You're going to be frustrated for some reason or another. Being a slave is hard work, isn't it? But I encourage you just to keep going, to keep yourself at the bottom of the pecking order. Because you see, friend, that is to follow closely in the footsteps of your saviour. That's where true greatness is in his estimation. Don't ever give up serving, will you? There are a lot of people serving in our church and that's great. But I'm also a little bit afraid because there are some people that I notice who don't seem to be serving at all. In particular, there's a group of people turn up to church right when church starts and then take off right after the service. Now, I don't want to pretend that I know why you do that. Maybe you've got really good reasons. Maybe you leave early so you can serve somewhere else in God's kingdom. And if that's true, then good for you. Keep doing it. But if your failure to serve here at church reflects your failure to serve in the rest of your life, then can I say that you're making the same mistake as James and John and you need to be rebuked. You need a revolution in your thinking. You've got to start serving because that's the way of Jesus. That's Christian discipleship. Here's the thing. Believe it or not, you don't pay Jeff and me to serve so that you don't have to. No, believe it or not, you pay us so that we can find ways for you to serve. We don't work for you. We make work for you. <laughs> Please don't stop paying us. If you can't work out for yourself some way to be serving this church, then please speak to Jeff or myself. We'll have a chat with you. We'll go over your abilities. We'll show you where the tea towels are kept. We'll show you where the broom cupboard is. We'll go from there. But friend, you need to change to be like Jesus. The one who served you by freely giving up his life as a ransom for you, buying your salvation, going to hell for you. To follow Jesus means being slave of all. If you want to follow Jesus, there's no other road to take. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we want to thank you now for our Saviour Jesus, the Son of Man, um, the one who, who left the glory of heaven to come and serve us by giving up his life as a ransom for many. Our Father, help us to see ourselves rightly as helpless beggars, I'm worthy to ask for anything from you but mercy. 
Thank you, Father, that Jesus stands willing to give us spiritual sight and willing to make us his disciples. Father, we pray that you would now encourage those in our church who humbly serve us. And we pray that you would please challenge those among us who are failing to serve as they should. Father, we pray that as individuals and as a church, we might reflect true greatness in your kingdom as we serve one another and as together we follow after our Saviour Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.